0: The book of Revelation, you guys have been giving me your requests for the next teaching series, and uh, a lot of people have been asking for James. I think just because it comes after Hebrews, you guys are chronologically anal or something, and you're like, Hebrews must do James next. (laughs) A lot of you have been recommending James, and then probably the most requested book has been the book of Revelation that you guys have been asking for, and we are going to do neither of them. What we are going to do eventually is yet to be revealed. It's a great mystery. But I'm throwing you a little bone. you wanted James. So last week I taught from James. And you wanted Revelation. So this week we'll talk a little bit about Revelation. And that's all we're going to get. So the book of Revelation, chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse 9. We're going to read a few verses, pray, and get into the study. But what we have here is a glimpse of heaven. So pray very carefully. If you don't have a Bible, listen very carefully. This is a glimpse of heaven. This is tremendous, important stuff here. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After these things I looked, it's John speaking, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious picture of heaven. And it was inescapable in this text that the most obvious thing in heaven is the throne and the one upon the throne. There it is over and over again, the throne and the lamb upon the throne. And today we ask that, Father, your will would be done in our lives as it is in heaven. In other words, that the throne would be obvious in our lives that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins in our place on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and is seated in glory and is coming back, that that one would be obvious in our lives like he's obvious in this text. So Lord, we give you permission this afternoon to mess with us, to deal with our lives, to deal with the innermost issues and the secrets of our hearts and our selfishness, that you would speak to us And that the throne that is in heaven will be made obvious in our lives on earth. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Last week, uh, after last week, I had a conversation with some of the staff members, and they were a little upset with me about last week's message. They thought, some of them, that it was a little heavy-handed, that it was a little mean. You know, I'd just come back from vacation, and I was a little fiery, ready to get back in the box, and the weeks prior, we'd been praying together as a church, which was a stretch for us, oddly enough, but we were just praying in our Sunday services instead of having a sermon, and I came back and I preached that sermon and the staff was like, bro, when you were preaching that sermon, they were just wishing they were praying again. (laughs) You were so mean. They were just wishing they were praying again. It was just too aggressive. Uh, The Bible's aggressive and God is aggressive from time to time. And I am a little aggressive. So from time to time, there's going to be spankings. And last week was one of those times, and today is another time. (laughs) Last week, we talked about the selfishness, which is inherent in our prayer lives. The selfishness inherent in our prayer lives. We talked about the fact that we pray these self-oriented prayers often. I want, God do for me. God why won't you? God why don't I have? God I really need. We we have this self-oriented prayer life so often and we kind of gave it a moniker, we gave it a little name and it was called a four-year-old's theology based on one of my interactions with my daughter, Daisy Love, who was four-year-old at the time, and and she was describing how she related to me, and it was all based on what I did for her. I love daddy because he buys me this, he gives me that, he takes me here. here. And a four-year-old's worldview and concept of relationships is completely egocentric. It's totally self-centered and they interact with others based primarily on what they get from others. And that's, that's developmentally normal for a four-year-old. But what we found is that many of us in Christianity have a four-year-old's theology, a four-year-old's understanding of God, a four-year-old's concept of God. And that's revealed in our prayer lives. Our, Our theology is made obvious in the way that we pray. And when we have self-centered prayers primarily, then we've got a self-centered theology. And that's an incorrect theology because it's, it's me-centered and not God-centered. You see, we want theology and our Christianity and the expression of it and life and living to be God-centered, not self-centered. And so what we were talking about last week, and what I want to continue today is, is the hope that we can transition from that four-year-old's theology of, I love God because of what he does for me, toward a more mature theology, which says, I love Jesus because of who he is. Not just what he does for me, that's part of it, but I love Jesus because of who he is. And if we can move toward that, if we can put our lives on that sort of a trajectory, we'll discover that we have a better prayer life we'll discover that we have a more full expression of Christianity in our lives. We'll find that we make Christianity more attractive to other people when we make it Christ-centered, Christocentric, instead of person-centered, anthropocentric. We'll reflect a better theology. Now, it's not that what Jesus does for us isn't part of it. It is part of it. And it's a glorious part of it. I mean, we were going to hell. And because of Jesus Christ and his incarnation and his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we have been saved from hell to eternal life. Amen. And and, and he heals us. He's the healer. He saves us and he redeems us and he restores us and he heals us spiritually and emotionally and relationally, even heals us physically. What we have, what he's given us, what he's done for us is wonderful. It's a part of it, but it's just not all of it. And when we make it all of it, what God does for us, then we're bound to falter in following. If we make it all about what we get from God, we're bound to falter in following because we begin to relate to God for what we can get. And this simply isn't what the relationship was meant to be. God's the initiator of this relationship. He's the creator of this relationship. He's the sustainer of it. And we pervert it when we make it a four-year-old's relationship. What I can get, what you do from me. And we make it all about that, which is only part of it, then we will falter in our following. Marriage. Marriage is created by God. Marriage is to glorify God. Marriage is a beautiful analogy of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's sort of a living parable. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of Christ in the church. Now, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. How many of you are married? Okay, about half of you. How many of you want to be married someday? Raise your hand. About half of you. How many of you don't care? I want nothing to do with it. Raise your hand. Okay, whoa. This is the biggest service. First service was one. Right on, Paula. I see you. Okay, girls, I see you. First service was one person. Second was three. And we had like nine in this service. Praise God for you. Anyway, Marriage. If you go into marriage with the mindset of, I want to get my needs met in this relationship, then you failed from the start. There's a fundamental failure at the start. If you go into the relationship, really any relationship, saying, I want to get my needs met. This is why I'm entering into this relationship, so that you can meet my needs. If we do that, we will inevitably be disappointed because only Jesus can meet your needs. We will inevitably be disappointed, and and then that marriage is in danger of failing. Because we have primarily a self-centered culture, we have a lot of failed marriages, More than half of all marriages fail in our culture. And to our shame, that statistic is the same in the church as it is outside the church because we find that Christians are just as selfish as non-Christians, unfortunately. And when you go into it where it's about me and you need to meet my needs, you're destined for disappointment and you're destined for failure. That's not what it's meant to be. In my own experience, when I have conflict in my marriage, and I have conflict in my marriage, if you don't have conflict in your marriage, something is really wrong. Everybody has conflict. We're going to have conflict in all of our human relationships. It's a normal part of the human experience. It's how you handle that conflict, what you do with that conflict that says something. We're going to have conflict. When I have conflict in my marriage, it's almost always, I could probably say always, a selfishness issue. And it's almost always, I know I could say almost always, me and not my wife. I'm not being self-deprecating. That's the truth. Usually it's because I felt the need to get some sort of thing met in me or I wanted this or I was asserting my need, my time, my priorities, my wants above hers. In my own marriage, when there's conflict, it's because of that you need to meet my need thing. As a pastor who sat with, hundreds of people over the years and talked about their marriages. Whenever there's a crisis moment or some long festering thing that's coming to the surface, it always has to do with selfishness. Selfishness is always the root of it. Some behavior took place because of selfishness or some grudge developed because of some selfishness or some broken communication, whatever it might be. When we set up another person in a marriage relationship, as the one who can meet our needs, we then become guilty of idolatry. Because as was said, only Jesus can meet our needs. And we put those people in a place that they were never meant by God to be. Only Jesus satisfies. Anyone else put in that place usurps Christ, dethrones Christ, and is an idolatrous relationship. And what idolatry does is breaks society. When we engage in idolatry, it births ungodly disappointment, which yields ungodly conflict, which brings ungodly brokenness. We're so often guilty of idolatry by placing our hopes and our expectations and wanting to get our needs met in another person. That's simply not God's design for marriage. What we learn in the Bible and explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5 is that marriage is about service and submission service and submission. We are sub- to submit one to another, Ephesians 5, 21. And then within that broader context of mutual submission is the fact that the wife is to submit to the husband. And it's not only about submission, it's about service. We're to serve one another as Christians, but within that broader context of serving one another, we learn that the husband is is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, having given himself up for her. That he is to lay down his life and surrender. This is what God has created marriage to be. And our relationship with God is similar. You see, Christ surrendered in Gethsemane to the will of the Father for the salvation of humanity and want to the cross for you and I. He has surrendered, he has submitted, he has served the will of the Father and now it is our place to surrender, submit to and serve him. So this relationship like marriage is about service and submission. Submission. But so many go into this Christian relationship, uh, us in Christ, like they do marriage, saying, I need to get my needs met. And the pulpits are so much to blame for that in America. Because we preach a gospel and we give an invitation that says, hey, come up here and accept Jesus into your life. That's the wrong grammar. You don't accept Jesus into your life. You surrender and yield your life to him. It's the wrong grammar from the beginning. Accept Jesus in your life. Give him a little place in your life. And he'll take care of all your problems and your wants and your needs and make all your dreams come true. And the pulpits in America preach that. And it's a false gospel. And we bring people into the faith, if we're even bringing them into the faith with an initial sense of it's about me. And God exists to meet my needs. God does not exist to meet our needs. And it's not about what we can get. It's about who he is. And we need to transition From I love you because of what I get from you, to I love you because who you are. Have you ever noticed that the most healthy, vibrant, flourishing expressions of Christianity, where we see the greatest growth in church movements is where there's the greatest persecution against Christians? Where Christians have the hardest time in culture and with governments and with opposition is where we see the greatest growth and the most vibrant expressions of Christianity. You see, it's because they're reading something in the Bible. They're they're seeing something in the Bible theologically that we as Americans who have sold ourselves to the gospel of comfort and the God of comfort refuse to see. We refuse to see passages like Paul where he says, I want to fellowship not only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I want to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. We refuse to see where God said to Saul, come, I will show you how much you must suffer for my namesake. We refuse to listen to a Jesus who says the whole world will hate you on my account. You will be handed over to authorities, you will suffer, you will be persecuted. Do not marvel when they hate you, they hated me first. We refuse to see the parts of scripture that tell us that we are called into suffering as a people of Christ. We, we just won't read it through our hermeneutic, our interpretive lens of comfort. And so what does the church in America have to offer the church in Sri Lanka? What does the church in America have to say to the Christians in Eritrea who today are sitting in metal containers and temperatures over 100 degrees, dozens of them in every container with nowhere to go to the bathroom, with very little food, all because they believe in Jesus for months at a time? And yet it's in these very places that we see the most authentic, vibrant, flourishing church growth movements, healthy expressions of the church, China. Because their experience will not allow them to say, I love Jesus because of what he does for me. Rather, they have to say what the Bible says. I love Jesus because of who he is. And when we make it all about the getting, when we have a four-year-old's theology, we're bound to be disappointed. make it all about us, self-centered, what we get from God, we are bound to be disappointed and we're bound to be backsliders. Because God doesn't work that way. There's nowhere in the Bible where he promises us comfort. There's nowhere where he promises us the kind of prosperity and comfort that we as Americans have been experiencing. We don't need to be guilty about that. We need to be honest about that, but honest enough to see that the God of the universe doesn't live to serve us. We live to serve him. People that give up on marriages and give up on following Jesus, often have the same sort of proclivities. I didn't get my needs met, I'm out of here. Jesus, this isn't working out the way I thought it was, I'm out of here. We detest, we deplore, we have a really hard time with people who every time they approach us, we know it's because they want something from us, don't we? We call them users, solicitors, salesmen maybe. Every time they approach us, they want something from us. The relationship is based solely upon that. We detest these people. We deplore them. We try to get away from them. And yet this is often who we are as a people before God. When we approach them, it's because we want. And when we don't want, then we don't. One of the things that's helped me think through this in my own life this week, and you need to know I'm getting spanked by God, as I meditate on these things throughout the week, is this, my goals. Everybody has, do you guys have goals in life? Yeah. Everybody has, if you don't have some, you should may think of getting a couple of those. <laughs> Everybody should have goals in life. Here's what helped me this week. As I was just spending time with the Lord, I, think about what your goals are. I mean, what are your goals in life? Break it down however you want, short-term, long-term, whatever you want, relational, financial, career-wise, school, whatever you want. What are your goals? Now ask yourself, are they Christ-centered or are they self-centered? Are they Christocentric or you-centric? Are they about the glory of Christ and the kingdom of Christ? Or are they about the glory of you and the kingdom of you? Goals are very telling. Last week, we discovered that our prayer lives were very telling. Goals are just as telling. We can discern by our goals and whether they're Jesus-centered or self-centered, a lot of what we think about God. If the goals are all wrong, then we're setting ourselves up for failure just like people that enter into a marriage with wrong goals. If our relationship with God is about pleading ourselves and getting our needs met, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to walk away because that's not how God designed it to be. It doesn't work that way. And what we need to know this afternoon, this is the main thing I want to say, is this. God has goals. And God's goals are more important than ours. God has goals. They're expressed clearly in Scripture. And God's goals are more important than ours. You see, God's goal is to bring all the nations into worship and subjection to himself. God's goal is Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Every tongue, tribe, and nation around the throne in subjection to and in adoration of the person Jesus Christ. You've heard the saying and we've all used this saying. Um, I've used it literally hundreds of times. And Public and in private. God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't feel bad if you've ever said that. I've said it hundreds of times. It's a true statement. It's not an untrue statement. We use it all the time in evangelism. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Doesn't go over that well in Eritrea, Sri Lanka, China, Saudi Arabia. But anyway, God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your lives. That's a true statement, but, but there's a more full expression, a statement that is more true that I think helps us to shift our thinking. Here's what it is. God loves his son and has a wonderful plan for him to bring all the nations into subjection and worship to him. And God loves us enough to include us in it. That's a more full expression. That's a more biblical thought. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your lives. Yes, but that's subsumed by the fact that God loves his son and has a wonderful plan to bring all the nations in subjection and worship to him. And God loves us enough to give us a place in it. God has goals. And the goal is right here in Revelation chapter seven. Every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Him. That is the end of all things, the consummation of all things, the goal of all things. Now, here's what the non-Christian, the pre-Christian, the anti-Christian, the atheist, however you want to say it, here's what they say about that. And here's the accusation they would level. And when we say that's the goal, is it Christ to be glorified and worshiped and obeyed among all the nations? What they would say is, well, then your God, your Jesus is an egomaniac and a megalomaniac. He's an egomaniac. He's obsessed with himself because he wants everyone to worship him. And he's a megalomaniac because he's obsessed with everyone obeying him. How do we handle that? Because it's a true statement. The goal of Jesus is that everyone would worship him and obey him. Does that make our God an egocentric megalomaniac? Here's why it doesn't. Here's why it's okay for God to think that and not for us to think that. Because God is the only one who's right. (laughs) He's the only one who's all right. He's the only one who's right on. He's the only one who is holy, without sin, perfect, and glorious. He is the only one. And so therefore, for anyone else to assert themselves in that way, at whatever ever level, on whatever strata you want to look at, whether it's um, you know looking to be worshipped in the business sense, or relational sense, or income sense, or whatever it is, Humanity goes awry when anyone else or anything else receives worship. That's the fall. Humanity is all right and right on to the degree that it worships God. Because God is the only one who's worthy. And God is the only one that's right. And so he's the only one that it is all right to worship. And anything else is humanity gone awry. And when humanity worships God, then humanity is set right. You see, it's not only about Christ in his glory. A subset of Christ in his glory is the well-being of humanity, but it's only a subset. And the well-being of humanity is not discovered apart from worship and subjection to Jesus. And so humanity is okay when it's worshiping Jesus. That's why we were made. That's why we were created for that meaningful love expression. That's the consummation, the goal, the end of all things in Revelation 7. And anything else is idolatry. And idolatry breaks and shatters and perverts. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, said, every Christian would agree That a person's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his or her love for God. That's a good one to remember. Every Christian would agree that a person's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his or her love for God. So we are created for God's glory. And we, let me make it very practical now, very usable. We function best when we seek his glory. We're created for God's glory and we function best when we're seeking his glory and the things of his glory. For example, our mind and our emotional well-being functions best when it's focused on Jesus. That's why it says in Philippians 4, Let your mind dwell on things which are lovely and pure and excellent and worthy of praise and of good repute. Let your mind dwell on these things. That's why it says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above where Christ is and not on the things of the world. To the degree that we set our mind, our ruminations our musings, our attention, and our imagination on the person in the glory of Jesus Christ, that is when we function best. I know this not only theologically, but experientially. Because there's a lot of times in my life where I let my mind dwell on other things, sometimes all night long, and I don't function well. Can I get a witness? We function best when not only our mind is set on Christ, but our affections are set on Christ, when our heart is set on Christ. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, excuse me, where rust and moth destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be, meaning your affections. So if your affections are on the glory and the person of Jesus Christ, then you function to your fullest, to the degree that our affections are on other people, to the exclusion of Christ or income or things or stuff. It causes us to not function as Christ created us to, to his glory. We function best when our mind is on the glory of Christ, when our affections are on the glory of Christ. We function best when we work for the glory of Christ. In whatever you do, shape surfboards, run a surfboard business, run a gardening business, you're an electrician, you're a plumber, you're a financial manager, you're a carpenter, you're a student, you're a housewife, you're a mom, you're a computer analysis, you're a programmer. Whatever it is that you do, you function best when you determine to do it for the glory of Christ. You can either think that your station in life and what you do from 9 to 5 is a coincidence and the best you could do or your own awesomeness or you can see life through the sovereign kindness of God and see that He has purpose for you to be there, to run and to work for His glory and that changes everything. If we start to ask, how can I glorify Christ in my plumbing? I mean, how, how can I do my payables and my receivables in a way that glorifies Christ? How can I run my business in a way that glorifies Christ? How can I craft this thing as an actor? How can I be in the industry in the way that brings the most glory to Jesus in my personal relationships and in the broader context? If you're an artist... How can we function at our best for Jesus in order to shape a culture that brings glory to Jesus? That's the question. When our minds are set on Christ, when our affections are set on Christ, when our work is set on Christ, we function better. And when we pray for Christ's goals, we function better when we stop praying for our goals and start praying for his goals, Revelation 7 prayers, we function better in our prayer lives. So here's here's a suggestion. A little bit of homework. Two things we could do to seek the glory and the goal of Christ in our lives this week. Choose one. Don't choose both. Too big. Choose one. Okay, ask yourself one of these two questions. The first question is this. Who do you know that's furthest away from Christ? Okay? Maybe someone comes right to your mind. Maybe you got to think real hard. Whatever it is. Who do you know that's furthest away from Christ? That's one question you might ask yourself. The second one might apply to you is this. What is the most significant situation, problem, conflict, or opportunity that you're facing in life right now? Maybe that's more meaningful to you right now. If you choose the first one, who do I know that's furthest away from Christ? Then here's your homework this week. Do something for them self-sacrificially and pray for them continually. Do something for them in a way which is self-sacrificial to the glory of Christ And pray them toward the glory and the goal of Christ continually this week. Just one person, one week, and see what God does. Because all of a sudden, you see, that then we're on God's program. We're working towards God's goals. And put some effort into it. Put as much effort into it as you put toward your goals last week. Or maybe the second question is more poignant for you. What's the most significant situation, problem, conflict, or opportunity facing you in your life right now? The question that you want to deal with then is, Christ, how can I glorify you in it? It's a big conflict. It's an awesome opportunity. It's a business situation. It's this art thing that you're working on. It's these contacts that you have. Just start to ask. It's really hard. It's really hard to figure that out in all the minutiae of our life. How can I bring you glory in this? how can I interact with this person in such a way that brings you glory? How can I run this in such a way that brings you glory? And then do that this week. When we do that, we're working toward the goals and the glory of God. And what we'll do is we'll just start to sort of inch away from churchianity toward Jesus Christianity. Just start to inch away a little bit from religion into real relationship where we've come in saying, Jesus, I want to do your gig for your glory in my context. Right where you are, whatever he's got you doing, that's the valuable, potent place to be right now. Maximize it, leverage it for his glory. You want to try that this week? Yeah. Okay, let's try it. Lord, we thank you for the possibility of living lives that glorify you. Lord, we just confess that we compartmentalize our lives and we've got our part for you and our part for ourselves. And in a little way today, we're saying, Jesus, invade the whole of our lives. Invade our work and our passions and our expressions and our relationships. Invade them, Lord, and leverage them for your kingdom. We're sorry for where we build our own. We're sorry for having a selfish, self-centered view of you. God, get bigger. Again, that throne, the image of the throne. Let that throne be evident in our lives. Be on the throne in our lives this week, King Jesus. Be crowned, be enthroned, be glorious. Let our lives be in subjection to you work these things in us, Lord. And and Lord, anything that I've said today that was too heavy-handed or anywhere that I struck the rock when I was supposed to speak to it, I, I repent, Lord, and I ask that nobody here would remember that stuff. But anything that's from you, Lord, don't let us forget it. Don't let us forget Revelation 7 and the goal of the whole universe. Help us to be right by seeking your glory in all things. Prayer team is here if you need help. Communion is here to celebrate Jesus, remember the cross, and you can come and kneel and get on your face before him.